from James to the Jewish believers scattered abroad. It is on page 1042 in the Bibles in your seats. So James chapter 5, starting with verse 7. Dear brothers and sisters, be patient as you wait for the Lord's return. Consider the farmers who patiently wait for the rains in the fall and in the spring. They eagerly look for the valuable harvest to ripen. You too must be patient. Take courage, for the coming of the Lord is near. Don't grumble about each other, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. For look, the judge is standing at the door. For examples of patience and suffering, dear brothers and sisters, look at the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We give great honor to those who endure under suffering. For instance, you know about Job, a man of great endurance. You can see how the Lord was kind to him at the end, for the Lord is full of tenderness and mercy. But most of all, my brothers and sisters, never take an oath by heaven or earth or anything else. Just say a simple yes or no so that you will not sin and be condemned. Are any of you suffering hardships? You should pray. Are any of you happy? You should sing praises. Are any of you sick? You should call for the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Such a prayer offered in faith will heal the sick, and the Lord will make you well. And if you have committed any sins, you will be forgiven. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Elijah was as human as we are, and yet... When he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, none fell for three and a half years. Then, when he prayed again, the sky sent down rain and the earth began to yield its crops. My dear brothers and sisters, if someone among you wanders away from the truth and is brought back, you can be sure that whoever brings the sinner back from wandering will save that person from death and bring about the forgiveness of many sins. Well, uh, Greg said it. It's true. Today is the end of James. My daughter, Sadie, uh, our oldest daughter, she said to me the other day, she said, Dad, how many more weeks are going to be doing this? I said, doing what? She's like, the James thing. I was like, I don't know, a couple more weeks. She's like, it's time to wrap it up, Dad. Come on. <laughs> so as long as she lives in the house, I will stay humble, just so you know. You don't have to worry about that. Um, but we are wrapping up, James. I have loved teaching this, and I, I, I've loved the last two weeks, Pastor Katie and Pastor Joe, uh, teaching, doing a phenomenal job with that. Pastor Joe, bless his heart. I said, hey, you know, this is the day. And he's like, great, what, what verses? I was like, uh, the rich people. <laughs> so, uh, but he did, he did so good with that. Um, I don't have time to recap everything that we've done. Uh, I, I don't want to do that to you, but I do want to just kind of give you a short summary because it has been 12 weeks, 12 weeks. This is the 12th week. We've been going through this New Testament letter and uh, in case this is your first time, James is a short, practical kind of how-to book for Christians. Is really kind of what it is. But it's not life advice. James is not life advice. It is Christian life advice, which is different. If your faith is not in Jesus, while there are some helpful things you could take from this, uh, you're not really going to understand exactly what James is getting at because it's Christian life advice. And so James takes five chapters to describe what the life of someone who believes in Jesus should look like in all kinds of specific real life situations. And this is an important point 
that we don't need to rush past, that there is a way that Christians live not. Don't rush past that. There is a way that Christians live and act. And it's especially now, but it's been around forever. There is this idea of spirituality and kind of assuming that spirituality is Christianity. But Christianity is set on and based on beliefs. It's based on a structure. It's based on an orthodoxy. So spirituality could be anything that makes you feel connected to any type of spiritual realm. Christianity is not just an open-ended spirituality. It is built on something. And there is a way that Christians live and act, and that is what James is trying to get at. And so each week we've had the chance to examine whether or not we have a living faith. This is the phrase that James uses, a living faith, a living faith. And yes, Jesus changes your life, but he does it by changing your days and your interactions and your conversations and your choices and your perspectives, and your actions, and your reactions. So we kind of talk in these broad terms of like, you know, Jesus changes your life, and he does. But he does it in very specific ways. He changes your life by changing your days. He changes your life by changing your schedule. He changes your life by changing the way that you see yourself. In all of these very specific ways, he changes your your life. And um, I love the way that Tish Warren puts it. Highly recommend her book, The Liturgy of the Ordinary. If you are a reader, I would highly recommend it. It's a, it's a phenomenal book that I read this, this year. But um, in Liturgy of the Ordinary, Tish Warren put it this way. She said, if I am to spend my whole life being transformed by the good news of Jesus, I must learn how grand, sweeping truths, doctrine, theology, ecclesiology, Christology, rub against the texture of an average day. How I spend this ordinary day in Christ is how I will spend my Christian life. I love that. The ordinary days. That's really when we can tell how much Jesus has changed our life is on the ordinary days. Um, it's not just enough to believe intellectually. The truths of Jesus and the gospel have to move from your head to your heart and shape you into a kind of person. This is spiritual formation, that, that belief in Jesus moves from our head to our heart and it shapes us and forms us into a kind of person living an ordinary day. And, and it's only then that you're becoming a kind of person minute by minute and hour by hour and week by week that your faith will change your life and, and you'll see this, this drastic difference that Jesus has made. You'll see it over, over the collection of those minutes and days and hours. And so we've looked at how Christians should view and endure trouble and how we respond to adversity, how we confront our biases, how we should speak, how we should manage money, all kinds of different topics like those. And um, for this last week, they're, they're really one, probably the longest passage we've read for this last week, we're, we're going to kind of take verses seven all the way to the end. And we're going we're gonna to see really two things. You could say three things, but really two things. This last week, we're going to, to look at how Christians should live and how Christians should worship. How Christians should live and how Christians should, should worship. And so verses 7 through 12, if you have a Bible, you probably see the headings, and they're kind of broken up there into three sections. But you can kind of see the breakdown. Verses 7 through 12 are about how we should live. And then verses 13 through 20 describe how we should worship. How we should live. People who uh, are believers... 
five different times. I counted. I didn't notice this week as I was reading it, but as Greg was just reading, I don't know, five different times he says brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters. So he's talking about the family of God, believers in Jesus. He, he, uh, he's going to give us really practical advice as, as believers how we should worship and, and how we should live. And he's going to do it in very practical, down-to-earth ways. So let me show you this. He starts at the very first verse by saying, Be patient, dear brothers and sisters, as you wait for the Lord's return. So this is the foundation for everything he's going to say to us, is be patient for the Lord's return as you are waiting. So as believers, we know that we are looking forward to something. We live, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls it the anxious middle. We live in this feeling of, Yes, the, the blessing of God, a life, eternal life with God, but we're also not where we are going to be yet, and so we live. And so James really says we live like farmers, which I don't think there's probably any farmers in the room. But he, but he says we live like farmers, and, and we live kind of with a posture of waiting. And as we are doing that, there is a way that our life looks like, and we should live patiently, contently, and honestly, these are the descriptions he gives. But if your faith is in Jesus, you belong to the family of God, your life should be described as patient, content, and honest. So I don't want to rush past that. I want to think about that for just a moment. Patient, content, and honest. I love these descriptions. And we're going to talk about this more in just a second. But I love these descriptions because it's so countercultural. It's so countercultural. A patient, content, honest, honest life. Kind of sounds like a farmer. You know, you plant the seed you in season. And you just kind of wait it out and see what happens. Hopefully you get some rain. So many things out of our control, right? But just patient and content and honest. And then he says we should worship. When we worship, we should pray, sing, confess, and look out for each other. We should pray, sing, confess, and look out for each other. This is how James, in his how-to book to these new first-generation Christians, describes the Christian life. He says, be patient, be content, and be honest. And then come together, and I want you to sing, confess, and pray, and look out for each other. That's it. That's how he describes it. And it's so simple and, and, so, and so beautiful. But we would have to admit that at first it sounds a little bit underwhelming, doesn't it? I mean, if you're putting together kind of a manual... Wouldn't you want to, you know, kind of rev them up a little bit? You know, wouldn't you want to hype them up a little bit? Wouldn't you want to talk about, you know, standing against the Roman government? Wouldn't you want to, you know, describe, you know, talk politics? Wouldn't you want to, you know, talk about, about how to, to build and, and, and structure and, you know, really systematize this thing? Wouldn't you want to kind of help them to, to, to build something great? This seems kind of underwhelming, you know, it, but that's, that's kind of what makes it so brilliant. And we live in this, this society that hypes up everything to a boiling point. Everything you read, everything you watch, every event you go to is epic. It's epic. And here James describes the Christian life as, as praying, singing, and confessing while we patiently endure and don't grumble. Don't, don't miss that. We're surrounded by a culture that is that is pumping adrenaline and promises of grandeur and just everything being epic. And James says, for the family of God, come together, 
pray, sing, confess, look out for each other, live really content, honest, peaceful lives, and don't be grumbling. That's it. That's what he says to do. And I can't think of a more countercultural description than that. Non-grumbling, non-restless, non-exaggerating people. Non-grumbling, restless, and exaggerating people who sing, pray, and confess together. What a beautiful description of the family of God. And I wonder, maybe for just a moment, if you would feel as if you would describe your life in that way. If you describe your life in that, that, that way, a non-grumbling, non-anxious, non-exaggerating person who belongs to a family of God. Now, I want to be honest with you and tell you that uh, as I was preparing for this message, I have been a little bit heartbroken because I worry that, you know, we've lost a lot of these characteristics that James is describing here. I don't say this in any condemning way. I'm putting myself as in we, we, all of us. You know, it's harder and harder in the chaos and the emotions of politics and social media to identify the non-grumbling, non-restless, non-exaggerating Christians from everyone else. Isn't that true? You, you should be able to step back and to notice the, the, the believers because they are the non-anxious, non-exaggerating, non-grumbling, non-restless ones. I, I was uh, reading a, uh, rereading a book called Resilient Faith um, by Gerald Stetzer, where he was talking about early Christians in the first century and how they went from a few hundred to a few million and how they uh, really overtook the Roman Empire. And he said it didn't happen in, in the boardroom or in the courtroom. He said it happened in the living room. It happened in the living room. It was the way that they were raising their children. And it was the way that they managed their money. And it was the way that they interacted with one another. That was so different from the society and the culture that other people were, being li were living in and being raised in. And so... Um, as a pastor, and as a Christian. So as a Christian, I'm right there with you. There's this sense of it's hard to not be restless, not, uh, you know, exaggerate, not, not, not uh, you know, feel as if I need to be grumbling or complaining about something. But then as a pastor, there's also this pressure that I feel, and every pastor forever has felt this, but man, just coming off the hills of COVID, you feel it. Uh, there's this pressure that I feel to have to try to convince people to come to church, convince people to be part of the family of God. Now, you're here, so I'm, <laughs> I'm preaching to the choir because you're here. Uh, let me talk to you. No, I'm just kidding. Not, not you. But, but there is this sense where you feel this pressure like you desperately want people to belong to the family of God. You desperately want people to move beyond watching the service or move beyond listening to the service or zooming into something. And, and, and you want them to belong to, to a family. You, you want them to believe that, that they need it more than you need them, but you need them and they need you. And there's this, there's this exchange that goes back and, and forth. And... Um, you desperately want them to, to, be a, to be a part of, of singing and praying and confessing together and, and, and encouraging one another. And 
And so James' words here are a great reminder that Christians have a way that we live and we worship and we can't do it on our own. We have to have a church family, brothers and sisters, that we sing with and pray with and confess to and to look out for one another. And so here's what I, um, I want to do. I'm going to read you two excerpts um, that are just beautiful descriptions of the way that we worship um, and, and then and try, to, try to kind of put a bow on this as best as I can. But I want to read two excerpts to you, these beautiful descriptions of the way that we worship. The first was written by a man named Justin Martyr. Martyr was not his last name. It was attributed to him because he was one of the uh, first martyrs for his faith. But he was a Christian philosopher, came to faith as an adult in the second century. And his kind of claim to fame was that he wrote a defense of Christianity in 150 AD. And I love the simplicity in the way that he describes the way that early Christians worshipped. And I want to I read this to you. It's a little bit lengthy, so just bear with me here for a second. But this is what... Justin Martyr said in 150 AD, describing the way that brothers and sisters who believe in Jesus gather together. He said, and on the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together to one place. And the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. Then when the reader has ceased, the president verbally instructs and exhorts to the imitation of these good things. Then we all rise together and pray, and as we before said, when our prayer is ended, bread and wine and water are brought, and the president, in like manner, offers prayers and thanksgivings according to his ability, and the people assent, saying amen. And there is a distribution to each and a participation of that over which thanks has been given. And to those who are absent, a portion is sent by the deacons, and they who are well-to-do and willing give what each thinks fit. And what is collected is deposited with the president who secures the orphans and widows and those who through sickness or any other cause are in want and those who are in bonds and the strangers sojourning among us and in a word takes care of all who are in need. I love this. And I became a little emotional this week reading those words, realizing that as Christians, we are part of something that involves hundreds of millions of people over thousands of years. That this is not just some order of service strategy. That for thousands of years all over this globe, hundreds of millions of people have come together and it looks a little differently and it maybe sounds a little differently. But at its core, it is what the family of God does. They come together and I love, they read the memoirs of the apostles. I love that. The words of the prophets, they pray together, they collect money together to use for those in need and they sing and they pray and they confess and they look out for one another. Even this morning all over the world, people of every nation, every language, every, dem- every demographic, every income level, every gender, every age are gathering with their church family to worship and pray and sing to God together. That's a beautiful thing. And I us with the opportunity uh, growing up my dad one of his goals in life was to take my brother and I on as many mission trips as possible as early as possible which is something we've tried to pass on to our kids but we spent a lot of time in Mexico South America doing different trips and uh, these are these were not bilingual services they were straight Spanish services and so the only part of the service that I ever knew if they knew the Americans were coming was they would sing Hallelujah, hallelujah. You know this song? It's really, the lyrics are hard. Here we go. Hallelujah, 
Hallelujah. And then you just repeat that over and over again. And if they knew that the English-speaking people were there, they would throw that into the worship set for us so that there was, you know, 90 seconds where we could worship together. Every country, every demographic, every age, every income level, in huts, in the woods, in big building, in cathedrals, on the street, in living rooms. This is the church. This is the family of God. It's a beautiful thing. Now, the second excerpt is from Charles Marsh, who wrote the biography, or one of the three big biographies on Diedrich Bonhoeffer, which I've been reading lately. Just get ready for a bunch of Bonhoeffer quotes over the next few weeks. But in 1931, Bonhoeffer visited America for nine months and was captivated by what he described as the soulful Negro churches in and around New York City. And using some of Bonhoeffer's own words, this is how Marsh described Bonhoeffer's experience. And I love this. He says, With an enormous intensity of feeling, the gospel is preached with conviction and power and interrupted by cries of joy. It was proof that one really could still hear someone talk about sin and grace and the love of God and ultimate hope. And beyond the preaching, Bonhoeffer felt churched deep in his bones, in the spirituals, in the strange mixture of reserved melancholy and the ecstatic joy in the soul of the Negro, It was as if these rural folk, by some synthetic power and spiritual genius, had earthed emotion, intensity, and feeling in the sorrowful joy of Jesus. And it was that phrase, reserved melancholy and ecstatic joy, that that really resonated with me. What a beautiful description of what we experience as Christians in worship. That we come together anxious and hurting, impatient, discontent, doubting, not really in a frame of mind or soul to worship or pray, but we come anyway. We come downtrodden. We come, you know, we, we, we come melancholy. We come defeated. We, we limp into the house of God with the family of God. And we do it because we need each other more than we need another sermon or to enjoy music. We need each other. We need to pray together and worship together and be honest with one another, confessing and forgiving. And we experience the sadness and pain of our humanity, but the joy and the grace and the mercy of a life filled with his spirit. Did you feel it earlier when Grant and the team were singing that bridge, the prodigal come home, the restless? That there was something you could feel. It it was the grace and the life and the power of the spirit of God overtaking that, that what you brought in here with you melancholy, defeated thing that we live with. This is not a natural thing. Everything in your life is designed to make you speed up and isolate. Everything in your life is designed to make you speed up and isolate. Which is, I'm not throwing shade at working from home, by the way, because I love a good couple of hours by myself. But we have to be really careful that even now we're not becoming more isolated. Right? But to live the Christian life requires grace and intentionality. You don't accidentally end up more patient, more content, more honest, more prayerful, more worshipful, or more connected to a church family. You don't wake up one day and say, you know what? I feel like I'm more a part of the family of God. I feel more content, more patient, less restless. It requires intentionality and grace. 
And this is actually the brilliance of these words from James. In a way, you could say that the reason we need the church so badly is because every second of our life, we are breathing in and breathing out this, this air of this world, and, and, and it's influencing us, and we're becoming less patient, less content, and less honest. It's coming together with our brothers and sisters and praying and singing together and caring for one another that we are able to detox, to repent, and to begin again. I love the fact that, that all throughout the Bible, the Holy Spirit, one of the metaphors for the Holy Spirit is breath. And, and there's this beautiful kind of imagery that we would come together and, and we would breathe in and breathe out the Spirit of God. And you can do that in your car and in your living room. You can, but there's something about the brothers and sisters, the family of God coming together and breathing in the Spirit of God, overtaking and detoxing that impatient, dishonest, discontent air that we've been breathing. And so we could take a lot of time to talk about all of these practices. You know, he talks about praying together and singing together and, and confessing together and, and, and looking out for one another. Maybe we will at some point in the future, we'll, we'll talk about those. But what I want to do for just the few minutes I have left is highlight just one of them. I just want to highlight one of them and just kind of show you how this, um, this plays out. Verse 16, verse 16, James says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Joe's going to grab a mic and we're just going to pass it along and we're just going to let, just confess whatever you've done. If we could just start now, we've got 11 minutes. Here we go. Who wants to go first? This sounds ridiculous. Doesn't James know that I've got a lot to confess if I'm forced to confess? Like, praise God, there's no lie detectors here. You know what I mean? Like, what does he mean? Now, if you grew up Catholic, and I know a lot of you did, and I did not, but the idea that you should come to church and confess is not necessarily a foreign idea. If you grew up Catholic, but I didn't grow up Catholic, so it was a very foreign idea. We came to church and lied about how good we were doing. We did not confess about, anybody know what I'm talking about? There was no confession, there was lying. That's what you did. You're doing really great. Um, and I got to admit, I've always wanted to go into one of those confession booths. Uh, but, I, but then all of my Catholic friends told me it ain't that cool. Like it's like, uh, it's like the movies are cool, but it ain't that cool in real life, so I let that go. But um, what does James mean here? And why, why of all things would he pick this idea of confession to, to describe why, like this is an important part of the Christian life. It's an important part of the family of God, being a part of the family of God. When we come together to pray and worship and confess, we are practicing a posture that we want to live every single day. So much of coming together as Christians is really kind of a rehearsal. It's a practice. It's the football team running through the plays. That we come together and we sing and we pray and we confess and we take communion. And what we're, what we're doing is we're kind of learning the playbook of the Christian life. So that on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday, we have learned, we're learning with our brothers and sisters what worship looks like, what prayer looks like, what confession looks like. And so obviously James is saying in some way that confession should not just be a part of what we do together on Sunday. That confession should be a, a, a something that doesn't feel uncommon. It shouldn't feel intimidating or scary to have brothers and sisters because conf to confess to because confession should be a part of our a rhythm of our life. 
But something really important to catch on to here is that James is describing a very participatory idea to church. That we should never just come to church to watch. And I know that what we do is awesome. Like, I love it, you know, like the, the music and, the, and I love it. I love it. I love it. But we should never just come to church to watch. You should come to church to participate. Because it's the place that you learn to live out your faith every other day of the week. It's where you learn how to pray and worship and confess with your brothers and sisters. That's how we learn how, how to do that. And so some of you need to take a step and start worshiping with your brothers and sisters in the family of God. I want to challenge you. Some of you guys have been coming a long time. And, and, and you, you're, you're still not like totally, you know, sure about the hand thing, you know, and, uh, and, and you're, you're a watcher and you're taking it in. And listen, I'm, I'm a very introspective person, so there's lots of times where I'm kind of taking things in. I'm not saying that everybody's got to be super demonstrative. But James gives some clear descriptions here. He says, if you have something to be glad about, worship. And if you know someone who has something to be glad about, worship with them. So do you have anything in your life that you could be glad about? Man, you've got a reason to worship. You've got a reason. Do you, do you know anybody who has something happening to them that they're glad about that you could kind of latch on to and be glad about with them? I was thinking as I was typing this out, I was thinking about Scott and Lindsay Julius. They're with us this morning. I was thinking about how excited Scott has been about getting this new job. And he was faithfully serving at a job where, you know, it was great, but he felt like there was something next for him. And God opened a door and he interviewed and he's making more money and he enjoys what he's doing. At least the last time we talked, that's what was true. And, 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 I, and I just, the, the smile on his face and his kids, and they're excited. And, and, and so when, the, when it's time to worship, now, I've got something to rejoice about. That one of my brothers, and Scott, has, after eight years, kind of found this new place in life with purpose and more money, which purpose and more money is always a good combination. And, and, and so I've got something to rejoice about, because one of my brothers has something to be glad about. I think about how the Garretts yesterday had another baby. After a long day in the hospital. Something to rejoice about and be glad about. That we don't just come and sing, you know, love songs to Jesus. That we're worshiping and celebrating together. And so I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to begin to practice the Christian life here together with your brothers and sisters. So that you can begin to do that on a daily basis. Some of us need to take a step and allow our leaders and elders to pray for us. We have, uh, you know, coming up here and during this next song, you have the opportunity to come forward and pray. And maybe today we're going to overrun the number of volunteers that we have. I don't know. But if you have something to pray about, James says, man, if you're sick, that could be sick emotionally, mentally, physically, spiritually. If you're sick, let the elders pray for you. Let the, let the volunteers, let the leaders pray for you. Let somebody in on that. And so I know so many of you, you come and you, and you watch, but you, and you, you, man, you want somebody to pray for you, but you're like, I ain't walking forward, and I'm definitely not doing that, you know. And, and I want to encourage you to do that. Step forward and let someone pray with you, because what you're doing is you're practicing the Christian life. You're practicing the Christian life, people praying with you together, praying out loud together. We weep together, we rejoice together, we sing together and pray together. 
and we practice communion together. And I think probably for the most part, everybody's like, all right, I can do that. But the confession, <laughs> the confession, this is intimidating because there's so much to confess, isn't there? I mean, how much has James wanted me to let out here? I mean, what, what we, where, do we, where are we going and, and who do we tell? And what are the statute of limitations, right? Do we tell just God? Are we talking about our growth group? Do we just like right now turn to the stranger sitting beside us? What do we do? Well, when a church is a family, when a church is a family, there should be relationships where you feel comfortable being honest about who you are. It's one of the ways you can know if you belong to a family. <laughs> this is going to sound so bizarre. I don't know why this just came to my mind. Help me, Lord. But I remember when my dad started dating again because my mom passed away. And I felt so uncomfortable those first kind of encounters when uh, who is now his wife was around because, like, she ain't family yet. Like, can I walk around with my shirt off? I don't know how this works. Like, we're at the beach and everything. But, like, I'm, like, getting in the pool, like, mock turtleneck, long sleeve. Like, I didn't know. Like, are we shirt off like family yet? Or like, like what, I mean, can I, can I talk trash at the board games? Like, I don't know what the rules are. You know why? Because we weren't family yet. But now we're family. And that's one of the ways you know if your family is like, are we dropping pretense and we just being honest and real about who we are, right? And so this is what James is talking about. He's not talking about re revealing everything you've ever done wrong in your life. He's talking about having conversations where you need healing. He said, confess and be healed. So where in your life do you need healing? There are areas of your life where you need healing. You need to tell someone that. Do you need to forgive someone, but you can't seem to let it go? You need to tell someone that. The bitterness that you're holding on to, the anger that you're holding on to, the unforgiveness you're holding on to, you need healing. You need to tell someone is there a pet sin that seems to have too much control over your life? You need to tell someone. You need to tell someone. Are you feeling guilty or ashamed or anxious or afraid? You need to tell someone. You need to tell them. And I think our biggest hurdle to this idea of confession is that we think it's reserved for big things, for big mistakes. Like, oh, Hit someone with my car. Like, okay, let's go back way up to the things in our life that are weighing us down. To, 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 the, to where we need healing in our life. It's not just big things. Confession should be a regular, daily, or sometimes even hourly practice in the life of a Christian. Because it's just an admission that we need grace. Confession is just an admission that we need grace. Rich Mullins was a famous Christian singer back in the 80s and 90s. Some of you know that name. And he used to say that when he was a kid, and I can relate to this, he would walk down the aisle uh, of the church to be born again again. That's how he would say it. Or, or rededicate his life to Christ. He would do it every year at camp. And I, I could so relate to that. And then he said in college, he'd do it about every six months. And then quarterly. And by the time he was in his 40s, he did it about four times a day. I love that. And when you're just getting started in the Christian faith, you think that a rededication is like a monumental quarterly, yearly, decade thing. But man, the longer you serve Jesus, you realize rededication is hourly. It's hourly. It's confession and repentance and grace and receiving. Confession, repentance, grace, receiving. 
And if I can get comfortable being a confessing Christian, then it makes its way into the small moments of my day. And then grace makes its way into the small moments of my day. Because confession is an opportunity to be reminded of my sin, but more importantly, it's an opportunity to be reminded of God's grace and love for me. It's just me having the humility and the recognition, recognizing that, man, I'm fallen and I need God's grace and love. And as believers, as brothers and sisters, confession reminds us that none of us gather here for worship because we're really good people. But we are new people, the people of God, people marked by grace in spite of ourselves because of the work of Christ. And so in just a moment, we're going we're gonna to pray a congregational prayer together. And then you're going to have the opportunity to sing and to pray and to come to the Lord's table for communion. You're going to have the opportunity to do what believers and brothers and sisters in Christ have been able to do for thousands of years. In every country, every nation, every continent around the globe. These are practices of Christians. These are the practices of the brothers and sisters in the family of God. And I love that James didn't end by talking about something really specific like, you know, anger or money or uh, our mouth. I love that he ends by saying, now that I've given you like 10 or 11 or 12 things you can be really analyzing and working on in your life, I want you to come together as a family, as brothers and sisters. And so I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to encourage you to take a step today and to worship with your church family. I want you to worship with your church family. And you don't have to do it any certain way, and you're not going to have to take a test on whether or not you worshiped or not. But I, you'll know. Have, have, I, have I participated? Am I watching or am I participating? Am I worshiping with my church family? I want to encourage you to pray with your church family. In just a moment when we have the opportunity to pray, if there's something going on in your life where you need healing, you need to come and, and, and let the leaders of the church pray for you. Maybe you want to go during this next song to someone that you know is going through something and ask them, can I pray with you? And together you pray together like brothers and sisters. Maybe you need to confess to someone an area of your life where you need healing. You just need to tell someone. You say, I don't need to do anything about it. I just need to tell you. I just need to tell you. But, but more than anything else, don't just watch. Belong. Participate. Pull up a chair. Pull up a chair, be a part of the family, and let's worship, and let's pray, and let's confess, and let's take communion together. And as we make this part of our life, you know what will happen? We will find ourselves being more content, more patient, less restless, more honest people. Because we learned how to do it in God's family. So I'm going to pray for us. If you'll grab your worship guide. We've got a congregational prayer. We're going to pray together. I don't know how much longer we're going to do these. We made a commitment to do these together for the, for the James series, so we'll see how it goes. But I've loved having the opportunity to just introduce a vocabulary into our life. Hopefully you've been using these in some way.
but I'm going to pray, and then you join me at the end. You know how it works by now. Oh, Lord, I am constantly surrounded by people but feel alone. I feel insecure and impatient. In a world of convenience, I have lost the ability to patiently endure without complaining. I long for something deeper than this world can offer me, something more than escape or technique. I long to be known, to be loved and accepted, challenged and led. You created a place for me, O oh Lord, a place for me to make sense of my life, a place to distill the lies from the truth, a place to make sense of my dreams, my faith, who I am and who you are. You create a place where I can come and breathe, a place where I can find rest from the pace of my life, a place where I can find joy from the wounds of this world. Will you join me? God, give me a greater passion for your church, a greater love for my brothers and sisters in Christ. And let my soul find joy in the family of God. Amen.